Welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast. My name is Mark Lindberg and I will be your host. Along with my guests, we will explore how science informs hunting by asking why questions. In addition, we will explore how science is used in management. Our focus will be somewhat on Alaska-specific topics, but we are open to other ideas and encourage you to suggest those ideas through our website. Today, I'm happy to uh, have Tony Hollis with me. I've been trying to um, pin down Tony for some time to talk about the science behind moose hunting and, well, moose season got in the way, and so we've been slow to to get him here into the sound room and, and talk this through with him. But he's here today after a successful moose hunt that I'm sure we'll hear something about at some point today. And um, I've known Tony since, gosh, I'm going to age us here, 19... 90s 92 93 yeah yeah probably about then when we were students here together at university of alaska fairbanks and um we both agree what a different place it was then and now something we might talk about near the end but again the focus today is talk about um, moose hunting and and some of his extensive knowledge about that having hunted him most of his life and um before we dive into that though i'm gonna get let tony talk about his uh background a little bit and who he is uh, professionally and and his hunting experience so if you don't mind Tony give us give us a quick bio okay um, like Mark said my name's Tony Hollis and I grew up uh, in Eagle River Alaska just outside of Anchorage I graduated from Chugiak High School in 1992 I attended UAF and earned a bachelor's degree in wildlife biology uh, I work for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. I began working for the Department of Fish and Game in 1995 seasonally uh, while I was in college. And then after I graduated, continued with the department. I'm currently the area biologist for the Fairbanks area for, for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game here in Fairbanks. I began hunting at the age of seven. My family was big into the outdoors and I spent a lot of time hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and just about every outdoor activity one does in Alaska. I went on my first moose hunt when I was nine years old. I harvested my first moose when I was 11. I have hunted moose every season since then and have become passionate about my annual moose hunt. So what's an area biologist do? People in Alaska probably know that a little bit better, but we have listeners from all over so so the department of fish and game has two types of biologists we have management biologists and we have research biologists and research biologists study a specific animal say a moose biologist or a sheep biologist or a grizzly bear biologist and their whole focus is on one species an area biologist is a management biologist and we spend our time with a particular area and all the species within that area so my area is the Fairbanks area and the game units around Fairbanks. And I monitor the game populations, everything from small game to all the large game and set seasons, bag limits and hunting seasons and bag limits and for a particular area. Okay. So it's probably not, um, part of the fun in your job probably is not every day is a little bit different, but what's the, what's the average week like during... Well, I'm seasonally that varies. That's probably a hard question to answer. It is, but we do everything from, you know, we do moose surveys and monitor moose populations and sheep populations and caribou populations. But we also um, do a lot of public meetings um, talking about hunting seasons and 
or other issues around the Fairbanks area. But then on top of that, we have things like dealing with nuisance wildlife in town, nuisance or injured wildlife that come into town or into the urban areas. Okay. So uh, I'll start you with an easier question than what's your favorite hunt. We'll save that for next. But what's your what's your favorite part of your job then? My favorite part of the job is uh, kind of the reward of managing a population, setting goals for, you know, animals harvested, and then achieving those goals and, and continue to monitor the population and um, for it to continue, see it continue to be healthy. And, and it feels like you're, you know, you're you're doing good. You, you can look at these populations and different aspects, compositions of the populations and all your goals you have, and you, you can see if you're achieving those goals. And for me, that's very rewarding. Hmm. That's neat. I mean, clearly you have some really um, great credentials, both from a professional and a, and a personal standpoint, your hunting experience. And it'll be interesting to hear how you bring those together today. So everyone hates this question, but I, I like asking it because it tells us something about who you are as a hunter and and what is your favorite hunt. And I bet it's changed over the years. But uh, It's certainly changed over the years. And I, I like to hunt all species, I, everything from small game to all the big game and all the opportunities we have in Alaska. And I've participated in a good, just about everything you can do. And, and, uh, but my favorite hunt, and that has changed over time, but currently it was back in 2017. I am a very passionate, very avid moose hunter. That is, if I had to pick one thing, I, that would be my favorite. It would be moose hunting. And uh, my favorite hunt is back in 2017. It was the first year my son was able to go on the moose hunt. We go on a long trip, usually about 10 days, set up a camp very remote. And uh, it was a perfect year. We had beautiful fall weather that season. We saw a fair number of moose. And my son was able to harvest his first moose. On top of that, it was a real nice 59-inch bull moose. We stocked within 75 yards of the bull. My son made a perfect shot, and to watch his smile as he walked up on that magnificent animal was priceless. Oh, that's cool. He was 10 then? Yeah, he was 10 then. Oh, my yes. gosh. Yeah, yeah Tony and I compare notes. Our sons are the same age, and um, and we compare notes about their experience, which uh, if I had to describe a favorite hunt, it would definitely involve one of my kids. Um, that would be a little harder to pick, but bringing them into hunting has been incredibly rewarding. I, yeah. I have to agree. Um so what gets you out of bed in the morning to go hunting then? I mean, why do you hunt? What's um, what's your motivation? I've had people ask me that in the past, you know, and and uh, I hunt for multiple reasons. I love being out in the wilderness during the month of September when the landscape is changing. It's even better when you get to share the experience with friends and family. I love seeing the red tundra, the tundra as it turns red in the fall, particularly in September. And the leaves on the trees turning yellow and falling. I love the first frosty mornings of the year and the morning fog you see in the ponds and meadows that come with those frosty mornings. Um, I like hunting because I love watching and learning about the animals I'm hunting. <clears throat> watching moose rutting behavior is an absolute thrill to me and my, one of my favorite things to do. I like hunting because of the skill and strategy it takes. Uh, to harvest the animal you're pursuing. And I like hunting for the delicious meat you bring home and get to share for the rest of, get to eat and share with people for the rest of the year. 
Uh huh. When's the last time you bought meat at the store? Yeah, I, you know, I've, other than occasionally chicken, I never do. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, and you've probably had a whole lifetime of not buying meat growing up in I Alaska. Had, I had uh, a situation about six or seven years ago where we had a field camp that we were setting up with quite a few people in the field camp, and I was buying groceries and one of the list one of the items on the list was hamburger and i realized that, that was the first time i had ever bought hamburger <laughs> raw not counting at a burger at a restaurant but at the grocery store well yeah and we we forget how how lucky we are here in alaska to have that option that's I mean, right i remember moving back and and i i don't think it ruined hunting for me but it um by any means, but I remember moving back from lower 48 where your motivations for hunting are a little different. Yeah. And uh, you get up here and you're, you're thinking it, it, there was a little pressure associated with it, right? Because yeah. back in lower 48, I did buy meat occasionally. And, and here there's this expectation and hope and desire to be self-sustaining. And uh, yeah. it's like, God, I got to yeah. get an animal now. And my reasons for doing that are very different. Yeah, and, yeah um, absolutely. And it's certainly, you know, for me, it's it, it's not the number one thing. I'm not going to starve to death if I don't harvest an animal in the fall, but it's one heck of a nice bonus. Yeah, definitely. And a moose moose does a pretty good job of filling in the yeah. freezer. So, um, And obviously you have a, a science background. We talked about that a bit already. And so now we want to try to merge those two things into thinking about how you use that background in science to apply to hunting. And so maybe you could talk about that generally now, and then we can get into some details about how we apply that to moose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The use uh, I use science in many ways, and, you know, there's so many different sciences out there, um, you know, different disciplines of science, but uh, understanding the ecology of the animal you're hunting is very important, you know, knowing where they live and what they eat and different things about, you know, their ecology is very important. Behaviors such as when the animals are starting into the rut and what stage of the rut they are in, what types of feed the animals are utilizing while you're out hunting that time of year, what time of day do animals prefer to move around while you're out hunting. And then other things like environment conditions and weather are important to know about. What are moose going to do if it's windy out, for example? What are moose or other animals going to do when it's hot or cold out? Uh, and knowing the a- anatomy of an animal is important. Uh, you know, for example, so you know where to shoot the animal to make a nice clean kill. Um, it's also important for once you harvest the animal, butchering it, knowing the anatomy of the animal, knowing you know, what parts you want to eat and and taking the animal apart so you can take it home and process it. So I'd say, you know, a hunting trip is you're constantly using different disciplines of science while you're out there. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I hadn't, that last part, I hadn't heard anybody say that yet for butchering though. It's, um, yeah, I mean, anatomy is important. I'm, yeah. I'm, so relative to moose, what's the Give us a little bit of uh, background on their ecology. I, I have some notes here, life history, life stages, but maybe you can well, develop those. I, I was looking at these different questions, trying to figure out how I would talk about it. But um, So starting with moose when they're young. Moose is born in the month of May, usually late May, sometime around the 20th. kind of varies a little bit depending on where you're at in the state, but it's generally late May that moose calves are born. Um, they go through the summer, they spend the summer feeding and building fat for the winter months and for the rut. 
the breeding season, which is starts in September. And the rut, pre-rut activities generally start sometime in the, you know, late first week, early second week of September, the pre-rut activities. Um, and then they move into the rut that begins mid-September to late, or sometime in mid-September they begin into the rut, and that'll last into mid-October. After the rut, they move to their, they generally moose move to where they're going to spend the winter time as snow flies and snow starts landing on the ground and things freeze up. All the leaves are off the trees, move, moose move to where they're going to spend the winter time. Um, they begin shedding their antlers in December, late November, early December. The big bulls generally shed their antlers first. And then uh, the smaller bulls can shed any time after that, usually no later than end of January. The moose spend the winter on their winter range, and then come springtime, sometimes moose move to a summer, a spring or a summer habitat, and also back to their calving grounds. And, and they go back to the calving grounds, and the females have their calves, and the bulls often, that calving grounds is often, uh, there's good summer food in that range, and the moose spend the summer in that range fattening up for winter for oh. to start all over again. Yeah, and it's amazing how those bulls just, in my experience, just absolutely disappear for much of that year. You just don't yeah. see yeah. them, especially when they're, well, I'm amazed how invisible they are right before the rut and then right after the rut when they have antlers still. They can be, for as large of an animal as they are, they can be, you know, a thousand pound rabbit hiding in the brush. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, so our focus, of course, there is some cow hunting that goes on, but bulls is mostly what people still do. And, and how do you take that knowledge of their ecology, their science of their ecology and translate that into hunting strategies? Calling particularly um, strikes me as an interesting place where those two get a, there's a marriage between science and and hunting there mm -hmm. um, so maybe you could address that one start with yeah um, um, I think the thing to think about uh, you, you, you want to understand what time of the year you're hunting so if you start moose hunting at the very beginning of September early in this you know most moose seasons are in September um, they can be earlier, and and this kind of applies to anything earlier than the, you know, from the first week of September or earlier. But most of that time, they're not in even into the pre-rut activities. They're still feeding like they do in the summertime, fattening up for fall for the rut and for the winter. And when a moose is that time of year, the where you want to look for moose is where there's good feed, and generally they like willows or aquatics that time of year. So hunting around ponds or lakes where there's aquatic plants that moose will go in and get, or big willow draws or flats, that's where you'll find the moose. And at that time, they're not, they're trying to put on as much fat and therefore they're trying not to burn as much energy. So you don't see them moving around during the day very much. They're often feeding first thing in the morning and then last, last a little bit of light and I think they you know they feed into the night and they move around in the dark but a lot of the daytime they're just laid up so you want to concentrate your hunting real early and real late in the evening so you're not calling early on um, much at all it, it's generally futile to call early in the season you're better off to get into you know either sit in a stand on a meadow system or some you know where they're feeding or 
if you're in alpine country, sit up high and with your binoculars and look for them, glass for them. Okay. And you time you're hunting, so you are calling generally as a tactic or is that I find that if you hunt later in September when they're in their pre-rut or rutting activities, there's a couple advantages. Uh, the moose are more vocal. They, they make noise. They like to call and do things such as rub their antlers on trees, which you can hear from a long ways away. They tend to move more during the day, and you, you have more opportunity during the day to see them. And uh, because they're preoccupied with a rut, a lot of times they're, they're a little um, easier to get on to harvest. Okay. Yeah. So stocking, spot and stock early on. Um, but let's get into calling then. So mid-September, things start to heat up. Uh-huh. And, and I've called in a moose or two and harvested a moose or two that way. But I've scared a, a lot more away uh-huh. than I've attracted. I almost, these days, restrict myself to cow calling because uh-huh. my experience with bull calling has been pretty bad, uh-huh. <laughs> pretty negative. So maybe you could help us understand their ecology a little bit there. I think you got to be careful. I mean, if you... The first thing that really happens as they start into the rut is the bulls start moving around. First of all, they quit eating. And the cows will continue eating throughout the rut, but the bulls will quit eating. But they start moving around and they start setting up dominance. You know, they'll spar around with each other, face off with each other, and set up kind of who's the king of the area. And they set up a pecking order. And, and you can clearly see that when you, if you watch it enough. And uh, at that time, that's, you know, kind of as they just start entering into the rut, bull calling, gentle bull calling, where you scrape an antler and grunt a bit, can work very well (laughs) um, to get bulls to answer and come in. But you have to be careful. If you act too big and tough, you're going to scare the younger bulls away. Okay. Um, If you're targeting large bulls, then you want to you want to act big and tough and and you'll bring the big bulls in but if you're looking for a young bull then that that you often can get them to answer but you may not get them to come all the way in kind of the next phase and they kind of go hand in hand those moose start moving around setting up dominance at the same time they're kind of picking up they're picking up cows to build their harems for during the rut so you want to uh Cow calls can work very well then, and they'll bring in anything. You can, you could bring in a young two-year-old bull, or you could bring in a large 65-inch bull, you know, looking for cows to pick up and take with him and build his harem. So cow calling works fairly good early in the season like that, and, and it really can work all season. Um, those bulls, as they're moving around looking for cows, they're off, you know, they they're pretty tempted by a cow that's moaning off in the background so yeah so so the the cow call is is i've heard it described two different ways one is the the uh cow is indicating she's receptive but i've heard it described as she's aggravated that she's being bothered by a subordinate bull and she wants the big guy to come along and get him out of there is that is there a difference in those two calls? or uh... There is not a difference that I can hear, and I cannot, I have, I, I have observed this hundreds and hundreds of times, and I can't, you can't figure it out, and, uh, but 
I have seen a lone cow up on the hillside sit there and beller for hours, and there's no bull around her. Hmm. And I've seen exactly what you're talking about, a group of cows with a medium to small bull in there harassing them, doing the same thing that are cl- they clearly don't want anything to do with that bull. So I don't know for sure what it is. Okay. But e- either way, it's... Uh, um, they make a lot of racket, and it, it, it draws other bulls in. There's got to be a scent component that we can't yeah, mimic either. Yeah, scent probably. or ferrum, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, we won't make you do the calls today. I promised I wouldn't ask you to do that. But it, just so people know, this is the way I do it, and I've heard it described. You're saying the little letter R repeatedly, basically. You're just drawing it A out. cow call in general, I'll, I'll do, I'll do okay. an example. Just a cow call is a call that's it's long, drawn out, usually kind of ends with kind of a grunt to the end of it, but it's a and different variations. You, you Every different, every cow you see do it has a different tone to her well done i liked it <laughs> we're gonna invite you our camp next year <laughs> yeah and it, and tony's right i've heard them too it's just amazing how long cows will go on with that i'm always a little conservative with it but boy when i've heard them um naturally it's like wow they're just they won't shut up I yeah mean, they can be very loud and it can go on and on and on you know okay yeah so this is their forming harems now and uh you know i i've like you said, I've seen it work for both larger and smaller bulls. It seems I'm calling a lot when I'm archery hunting and the smaller bulls just won't come in close enough on that mm-hmm. call has been my experience. Rifle range, yeah, but, you know, 40, 50 yards, no. They're just, they stay their distance still. Yeah. And it seems like you need a little something more to get them to, to bite. I think the small bulls are always hesitant. They know that there's someone bigger around. And they come into even a cow call, they will come in and they will come right in. But as they get close, now they're looking for the big guy that's going to come after them. Gotcha. And so I think they get real hesitant up close. Whereas some of those big bulls, they will, whether you're doing a cow call or a bull call, they, they will charge right to you. And they, they know exactly where you're calling from. Yeah, so... Strategy-wise, just I've heard a couple different strategies. I'm often hunting alone, and it seems like it would be more productive if I had somebody calling behind me. Uh-huh. If I could determine the direction they're going to come from, it, it, generally I can. Yeah. Um, have you used that strategy so you end up closer to them as the shooter? Um, I, I have used that in the past, but I think what guys end up doing a lot i think the number one mistake of people calling is when they start calling they move too much i think people need to be more patient in general Hmm. and stay in one place and i know that's not always easy if you don't hear anything for an hour you want to move but definitely once you hear the animal i think people they'll hear the animal and when he doesn't come in right away they'll start moving on him and i think that mo that period of time where you try moving from one spot to another as good as their hearing is they figure out something's up Hmm. and isn't right yeah the other strategy i've heard is if you get them to respond 
call one more time and run at them yeah. um, w- without them being able to see you mm-hmm. and make a lot of noise so you sound like a moose going towards them. Yes, and I've used that technique a lot. Um, if you get a moose hung up somewhere, you know where he's at. And you just start grunting and scraping and walking right at them. Okay. That definitely works. Okay. Yeah. And they'll just park it. They'll just sit there and wait until they figure out what you are. Yeah. If, if you got the wind right and you, you can't walk through the, a human cannot walk through the woods and sound like a moose quietly. You know, a moose can sneak through the woods and hardly make a noise and you can't, you, you make noise. And, uh, but if you act like, if you sound like a moose going towards them, scraping an antler or a scapula on the tree and grunting, then they, they usually think you're a moose. Uh, that's interesting. I, my impression, again, and correct me if I'm wrong, is moose decide how much noise they're going to make. I've had them be absolutely dead quiet yeah. to making this incredible amount of noise. Yeah. And as they come towards you, yeah. busting everything in its path. Yeah. Yep. Huh. Yeah. Oh, this is interesting. I, again, I've been sort of exploring this on my own and, you know, watched some instructional videos, but being out there and doing it is a whole different game. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, I'll give you an example this year. Uh, the moose, my son got, we, we spotted him across the valley. He was on a hillside. And, uh, so we got down, we went down into the valley and got below him on the hillside and the, and the wind was right. And it was a large bull, and he had six cows with him. And so we got to where we figured we were probably about 300 yards from him, but we couldn't see him. We knew where he was at, and we started calling. How calling? I started with a bull grunt and scraping. Okay. I was grunting and scraping, and I got him to answer right away. He answered. Then I did that several series, and then I mixed in a cow call. And uh, here he came, we could hear him coming, and he was loud, he was crashing, and and we could hear him getting closer and closer, he was coming down the hill, and uh, all of a sudden, we could hear him going the other direction, away from us, and I thought, what the heck is going on, and he was, go- he was still thrashing, and really wound up, and grunting, and breaking every tree he came to, but he was going away now. So we sat there for a while and listened, and we could hear in the distance another bull calling. And so he was heading to that other bull. So we sat there for a little while, and pretty soon I heard him coming back. I kept calling, I kept grunting and mixing in a cow, a big long cow call every once in a while. And pretty soon I heard him coming back. And he was on a full, you know, coming to us on a string, just straight. I could tell he was coming straight at us, thrashing. And pretty soon I could get glimpses of him coming down the hill. I could see his antlers through the brush, and I was getting glimpses of him. And and finally I could see him. I couldn't see his whole body. I could see his antlers, and I could, he was probably 150 yards out, but he was in the trees and brush. And But I was seeing him, and then he stopped. Stopped making noise and everything, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then it re, I realized he bedded down. He went from charging in grunting really loud to bed it down and i i couldn't figure out what the deal was i'm glad this happens to you because it's kind of thing happens to me all the time yeah so i knew right where i could see him so cody and i we just started walking at him and i just started grunting and scraping and it was kind of noisy country to walk in it was there was a little bit of burn in there and there's a little bit of ice on the you know the marsh and so it was kind of noisy so 
we just started grunting and scraping and we just walked straight at him real slow but fairly loud and and uh, we walked within 60 yards of him and he was we had a wide open shot he was 60 yards I set up the shooting sticks my son got on him I said as soon as he stands up and turns broadside shoot him and about that time he did he stood up broadside and Cody shot him and he went down but turns out as he was coming down the hill he came upon one of his wallows where he had dug a pit and been urinating in it and rolling in it he came upon one of those and he just bedded down huh interesting so he stopped uh, you know sent up a little bit before he came in for the fight I guess interesting yeah I was photographing one post rut this year um this might be related, but his nose was absolutely black. I assume that was from rubbing in the wallow. Yeah. 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 So you, you kind of got to the next uh, part of this in their life history that I see during the fall, and is they hair them up, at least the larger bulls do. And, mm -hmm. and my experience, again, mostly in archery, is that once they have a cow with them, it's just the game has changed. It's that much more difficult to get them to move. And yeah. Yeah. What what do you try then? There's and a couple of different things. You know, when when a harem is formed, it's there's generally a a large bull or the largest bull in the area, and he has anywhere from one to well, the most I've seen is thirty seven. Oh my gosh. Thirty seven cows. While hunting. While hunting. Yeah. Wow. And but they have these groups of cows with it. Well. And that bull is trying to keep all those cows. His goal is to breed all those cows. But there's usually what they call satellite bulls hanging around the area. There's all these cows are making all kinds of racket. They probably smell, you know, as if they're ready to breed. And it attracts bulls from all over. So you have these satellite bulls in the area. And generally the satellite bulls are fairly easy to get. Uh, they'll they'll be hanging around. They're willing to come to any cow, you know. They they're moving a lot, and they're they're kind of sneaking around the outskirts of this larger bull with his harem, calling the bull the bull that leads the harem out can be difficult. And I found that if you know where that harem is and you know where that bull is, the technique for calling them out is you have to start calling and then keep getting closer and closer and closer. And there's a threshold in there, and it's usually fairly close. It's within, you know, 200 yards of him or maybe 300 yards somewhere. There'll be a threshold that he might answer you, but he won't come. But when you cross that line, here he comes. Hmm. And he's just running you out. He's getting you away from him. But And I think that threshold varies from bull to bull. And I think it... It depends on kind of your density of moose. If there's 10 satellite bulls hanging around this large bull with this big harem, he'll let them get closer before he comes out because he's constantly chasing other bulls away and he gets tired. But if it's there's not many moose in the area and it's one bull with two cows and just maybe one satellite bull comes in, he might run that guy off as soon as he hears him. Okay. And so when you're closing this distance, you're again making sound like you're a bull you coming. only want to sound like you sound like a bull you you, you can throw, mix in a cow call every once in a while that sometimes can if they figure think oh he got one a hold of one of my cows he might come out too but act like a bull move in slowly 
grunting and scraping and then maybe mixing a cow call every once in a while. And their sense of sight is not very good, but you stay pretty hidden while you're doing it. I always try to keep, you know, next to some brush or a tree. You don't want to mm -hmm. stand out in the wide open, but, you know, the main thing they're using is their nose and their hearing. Yeah, their, so. their hearing is insanely yeah. good. I've yeah. seen them use their antlers as radar dishes for yeah. gathering they sound. Know, they know right where you're at. They absolutely know where you're at. Mm -hmm. Huh, that's interesting. So, so it's, um, this, this kind of, um, well, let's just cover one last point here and then we'll move on to some weather climate related things. But I haven't done stand hunting for moose with the densities we have up here, unlike whitetail densities. Yeah. You know, we get a moose per square mile versus what, 20 yeah. plus. Uh, do people use that tactic up here much? I, I think there's some of that, you know, if you're hunting flat country, swampy country, and uh, where there's no other advantage, and and early in the season when you can't or, you know call them, there's you, you can a stand in flat country. You get 20 feet off the ground, you can see three times the distance, you know. And so I think there's advantages to that. You know, there's a lot of guys say in the Tanana Flats that set up stands on big swamps and stuff, and it allows them to see out there a quarter mile instead of maybe a hundred yards. So yeah, they right. can see more country. So it might just be for initial spotting and then using different stalking techniques once you see them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, shooting them from the stand seems like a really low probability. Well, I mean, it, it, it would be an advantage if you had one come within shooting range. Yeah. You know, but Yeah. I goofed a little bit with trail cams in recent years, particularly, and it's it's, you know, I try to pick the most traveled corridors I could find, and yet yeah, I catch a moose every every third day or something. Yeah, it's yeah. just... We have low densities, and if you, you know, you get out and do a little scouting and find a place where you can tell they're coming out and feeding regularly in lots of beds, it would be a good, you know, a good technique, and it's flat country to set up a stand and crawl up in that stand and probably have a chance of finding one. Okay. So within that hunting season, which most in Alaska, we're talking September 1st to 20th, 25th, even the end of the month, I guess, for the occasional season, um, uh, weather during that time, is there is there the perfect day that, or the stated another way, is there a day you just wouldn't even bother with? Um, well, I feel like, I feel like the later in September you go, the better. And, and there's a couple things. One, the moose are farther into the rut. They get more vocal. They move around more. And as far as weather goes, it gets cooler and generally. And cooler weather means the moose move around more, move around more during the day. And, and it's also easier to keep meat once you harvest a moose. So their their activities is pro is I, well I don't know if it's more but is dictated both by the day's weather as well as their physiological state how much testosterone they got going I mean I suppose they can't overcome testosterone at some level even on a hot day late September they're gonna and you'll gonna, see them out then too yeah okay I just think they're more apt to, on cool days be out longer and more and then it gives you more opportunity to see them and hunt them okay but warm calm day do you bother or, or I, I yeah i absolutely you, you you never know you know okay you never know when you're gonna find them they they 
just decide they're going to move one day and in the middle of the day or they get chased out by another bull and they're they're going to move and go look for cows somewhere else you just you never know when they're going to be moving huh. so then climate then i mean you got 40 40 plus years of hunting around that right mm-hmm. um have you seen changes the hunting seasons have been pretty much set for that time period right yeah, you know, when I was a kid, the season was September 1st to September 30th, so it's okay. always kind of been a September time frame. Okay, so are you seeing changes in moose behavior, or are the seasons um, too early now, or is, is, is there I, a trend? I don't know. Way? You know, there was always, the first part of the September, even when I was a kid, we didn't even waste our time with that. Of course, I was living in south-central Alaska, so it's a little warmer there. Yeah, in early September, and but there was other factors. The leaves hadn't fallen yet. That makes a big difference. If the leaves have fallen, you can see better. Mm-hmm. The moose stand out more, and it was it's generally always been warm. Do I think it's a little warmer now, especially around Fairbanks? I think it is. Mm-hmm. It sure seems like we see more seventy degree days in early September than we used to. They're high sixties. And maybe more variation, but, you know, we still get frosty mornings in September and like we did back then. Yeah. So, So, I mean, maybe the changes are on a a day, a day plus or minus either Mm -hmm. way, two days, but Mm -hmm. it's not like a week. I mean, duck hunting, I think back to the early 90s, you know. Boy, if you didn't get it done by October first, it was yeah. It wasn't gonna. You were they done. were gone. Everything was frozen. Yeah, yeah. but now, geez, mid October is still very doable. Yes, you no, can't count on it anymore. I absolutely think that you know there's some change happening because you know Fairbanks always had snow in October, you know, and now we seems like we rarely have snow sticking in October. So yeah, well, it's interesting. We're talking today. It's October 29th, and we just had a. A Chinook go through this weekend that um, the little snow we had is is gone. Yeah, I was uh, driving back from down south in the Alaska Range over the weekend, and we went from, well, Saturday it was 12 degrees Saturday night, yeah. and we passed through Delta Junction, and it was 48 yeah. and blown about 70 miles an hour, too. Um, right. It was a... And I know some of that makes it more difficult for hunters. You know, we when you have a warm September or a real rainy September, you know, rainy Septembers, I don't think affects your hunting, but it affects the amount hunters want to be out hunting. Right. So we see lower, like last September was very rainy, and we saw it in the harvest in all game units around Fairbanks. But I don't think that was because the moose hunting is worse. I think it's because hunters want to don't aren't out in it as much hmm. so you haven't heard and you would hear this because you're part of the complaint department but um hunters aren't saying board or seasons are too early now it's uh things have changed we need to i we do hear that we hear that regularly oh really yeah okay we hear that regularly is it's too early we'd like it later the one thing that i've looked at um around the fairbanks area is you know we we do a lot of surveys we do twinning surveys we have moose collared in Tanana flats and and we look at you know when the peak of calving season and that has not changed over the years hmm. and if your calves are being born at the same time that means they're being bred at the same time so I don't think that because of the weather the breeding season hasn't shifted later and some people think that's what's happening that they're not going into they're going into the rut 
later. And if they were going into the rut later, then they would be bred later. And the gestation period for a calf is gonna be the same amount of time. So if they were bred later, then the peak of calving would be later in the spring, but it has stayed constant. That's interesting, yeah. So it's probably more photo period driven than maybe yes. weather driven. Yes. Yeah, I haven't paid attention to leaf, excuse me, leaves coming off the trees, but I have noticed over the decades I've been here that the leaf out date is moving, advancing, but I don't know if the leaves are staying on the plants later. I don't know if you've seen those numbers or not. I, there's definitely annual variation. I notice when I'm out moose hunting, so yeah. there's, there's more leaves on than others. Hmm. So. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's interesting. So you probably don't want to hunt them when they're too vulnerable and and too ruddy. I, I don't know what other word to use. It, I'm thinking of this time four or five years ago, I snuck out for one of those cow hunts in Minto that opened October 15th. Mm-hmm. And I was calling, trying to just locate some moose. And I frightened myself a couple of times because I had some bulls just about run me over. This is the 15th of October. And yeah. It's like, wow, where were you guys? Yeah. You know, September 20th. Ago, yeah. 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 And um, but then I thought to myself, boy, they're really vulnerable right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure they're high quality meat now. Is that a factor in the hunting season? It, it's definitely something to think about if you were, you know, there's. I don't know if it's ever been proven, but there's talk about hunting them right in the middle of the rut, you know, harvesting these large bulls that have harems. Does it affect the number of cows bred? Mm-hmm. And there's arguments both ways. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does, but there's always almost a satellite bull around to breed them. We, and uh, so it certainly could be a factor, but it definitely makes hunting easier when they're right in the middle of the rut. Interesting. No, that's that's interesting observations. It's it's great to get the insights. Somebody that's been doing this for a while. So switching gears here a little bit, just about um, gear, and um, I've uh, just be curious to hear your thought about what guns, ammos you use, and if that's changed for you over the years, or has that been a fairly constant what you use. I, it's been very constant for me. I, you know, the very first moose I harvested when I was 11 was I, I used a thirty out 6 and huh. probably 95% of the moose I've harvested have been with a thirty out 6 and then same with my son, the couple that he has. Um, I don't think moose are terribly tough to bring down, so I don't think you have to have an absolutely use a large, large caliber. I think it's important that you know how to shoot the gun you use. I would suggest something 270 or larger. I know some people use smaller caliber rifles, but in general, I would say a 270 or larger and make sure you're proficient at shooting it. Yeah. Ammo, have you gone to copper? or? I've tried copper the last three years. Right now, I'm not very impressed with it. Huh. I have had bad luck with it. Um, I up until the last three years, I had just used you know a Nosler partition lead-tipped bullet and never had any issue. And I, I've tried copper the last three years, and I'm not real impressed at this point. But I, I'm, I haven't given it a fair shake. Yet. Yeah, fair enough. I probably used it for a decade now, and I've been really impressed with knockdown because it's got nearly a hundred percent weight retention. The problem I've had with it. Um, 
is it doesn't expand, right? So entry and exit holes are yeah. almost identical, yeah. other than which way the fur's facing. And I've, I, I, a couple of years ago now, I shot a moose out in Tantanal Flats, and it left three drops of blood and yeah. then ran 200 yards, and it took us two hours to find it. Yeah. And it was in willow, thick yeah. willow, and yeah. uh, just no no sign of no blood trail. Yeah. And uh, it was... You know, it was lethal shot. It was double lung, and yeah. uh, it wasn't going far, but heck if we could find them. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know. What are you hearing from the general populace or people? The general populace is very impressed with it. Huh. But I just have not been. I've had a couple issues that, I, for example, I had a sheep. The very first animal I shot with uh, copper bullets was a sheep, and he was broadside at 200 yards, and I shot him right behind the shoulder, kind of through the front of the ribs. First shot, he kind of staggered around, and he turned around the other way, and so shot him again, same place but from the other side, and he went down, and the bloodshot meat damage on the ribs was unlike I'd ever seen. There was hmm. not one ounce of salvageable meat on either rib of that sheep. And the couple, it was totally bloodshot. It was totally useless, all the rib meat. And I've had that happen a couple times now. Interesting. Yeah. So you hit a rib going in on both sides, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, not that you can do much about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I haven't, I don't know that I've consistently noticed that. But, um, no, that's interesting arguments. I mean, um you know the ballistics are out there. There's no disputing those, yeah, and they're absolutely. they're competitive with lead. But the real application of it in people's experience—that's yeah. one thing I haven't heard. Um, like I said, for me, just finding the animal. Usually they don't go far. They don't. Yeah. My experience, they haven't gone as far after being shot with copper as opposed to lead. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, finding them is yeah, <laughs> the right. hard part. Yeah. Huh. Well, stay tuned for that. We actually have an episode coming up talking about. Um, comparisons of non-toxic shot mostly for bird hunting but um, mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear experiences from big game too um i had another thought on that i lost my train of concentration there but anyways um moving on um getting into some other things so um maybe we could talk about um the perfect conditions for moose hunting i have it here stated as the ultimate hunt and why but mm-hmm. um and that's grounding it in moose hunting and uh wonder if you could tell us what what that would be your perfect day the perfect day would be a frosty morning so you know it, it frosted that morning below freezing um sometime in mid mid to late september calm no wind that day when uh, moose are subs- they do not like because they use their nose and their ears really windy nays moose don't like to move around they like to be in the brush, and so it'd be a calm day. Um, the, there would not be a full moon that night, and uh, hmm. and then of course just having friends and family around it. Yeah. yeah, good point. You forgot one ingredient that becomes more important to me as I get older is that it's somewhere near my vehicle or something yeah. that I don't have to carry it on my back for too long. You don't want to have to pack it very far, yeah. <laughs> you probably have some incredible packing stories. It's uh, I try to keep that very minimal. So yeah. I, I've, yeah, I've made the mistake of shooting a moose too far away 
more than once. So yeah, I, and you only make that well. Most people only make that mistake once, yeah. Tony. So yeah. yeah, if you haven't shot a moose yet. I mean, some of these hindquarters on these larger bulls are probably not boned out. 110? Yeah, 110 to 118 pounds generally. Wow. On the hindquarters, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I shot one that we back calculated um, a few years ago. It, it We had 500 pounds of meat off it, so we were yeah. back calculating at 1,500 pounds. And it was not a far pack, but he spun around and decided to die in 10 feet of water. Mm-hmm. And, um, boy, that's... That was a lesson learned too. Yeah. I mean, that was it all worked out. But yeah. two rope alongs and I think six hours of butchering later, we yeah we were able to take care of them. So yeah, you got to take that. If into, you don't bone a moose out, you know, you don't take the meat off like the hind quarters and the ribs. Um, a large bull is, and you got to pack it on your back. That's eight trips that you have to pack out of eighty pounds or more. Generally. Yeah. Yeah. How much did you make Cody carry this year? We didn't have to pack it this year. <laughs> That's not fair. You got to yeah. get him packing. Right. Yeah, that would be. Uh, I got Zane, my son, on the squat rack. We set up a squat rack in our garage. That's my joke. Yeah. yeah I got to get him ready as I get older. Yeah. Here. He's yeah. got to be exactly. pack ready. Yeah. Um, so, kids, speaking of kids, what? Uh, how do you bring them into hunting? You, you've had. Cody everywhere now. I mean, yeah, I started him young. He just was my sidekick on everything I did. So I, I think you could judge that your child, you know, when are they ready? And um, my son started. He just went everywhere with me, and I, I held him out at some things like things like sheep hunting and stuff that are a little bit more difficult. Uh, but he just kind of always went along, and he took to it real well. I had him shooting small game at you know, the age of six. And, and so he was pretty proficient with a rifle. Um, as soon as he could hold it, you know, himself and, uh, yeah, he harvested his first, uh, big game animal at eight and got his first moose at 10. And Hmm. so, yeah, I know you were, I think last year was the first year you took him in on your Epic trip. It was two years ago. Oh, was it two? Okay. Okay. So he's, he's all, He's doing the the biggest moose yeah. hunts there is already. So. Yeah, he is, and he does good. He's a, you know he's absolutely fine out there. He doesn't like to get up early in the morning. But <laughs> other than that, it's... <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Zane's up very early. That's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all have their different thing, you know. No doubt. Yeah, uh, I made Zane pack this year, by the way, just a caribou. We intentionally went some distance, so you'd have to. Yeah, that's pack. a good, that's It a good, wasn't. They need to know about that. It wasn't a huge load, but uh, yeah. yeah. And it's, I think it's important to see all. I think the thing with kids is, you you think about what the end project is. You take a kid in moose hunting, and he's going to shoot that year, and you want to get him a moose, right? But I think the important thing is, you, they get excited about everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you see moose poop on the ground, you point it out, or you see where a bull rubbed his antlers on the tree you point that out and or you smell a moose when you're walking around and you can sometimes smell them you know just pointing all i think they get excited about all that stuff and their brains are such sponges most of the time they don't forget any of it either yeah it'll be interesting to see how um your your son and mine develop as they enter their teen years now my daughter who uh hunted with me extensively maybe more so than my son is now 16 and 
it's in her interest is yeah temporary hopefully temporarily waned yeah. um but I want her. She's more in shape than I am. I want her out there so she can help yeah. <laughs> help out with that stuff. And she doesn't. She doesn't go out. It'll be. I'll, it'll be interesting. To continue to talk to you about how the, yeah, yeah, our kids do. Be, everyone always told me that, you know, in those years I would, I'd lose interest for a while, and I never did. You know, I so, didn't either. So I mean, I I just mixed it. You know, yeah, mixed it with everything else I did, and. Yeah, I, I I didn't either. I'm, I think it back on it. Um, yeah, I was I and I had a steady girlfriend in high school, but you know yeah. she was somewhere down the list. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I would you know in high school we'd skip school and go duck hunting, and we just started skipping school and taking the girls duck hunting with us. You know, <laughs> things like that. You know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they develop. So um, that's great. You're you're bringing. Cody into hunting and and um, maybe some of his friends. Who knows? Um, but um, moose management. I I don't know what you want to get into on this. You deal with it on a daily basis almost. Maybe a maybe a way of framing it is just what are we doing right and what aren't we doing so well? Or is it all pretty good now? I I you know I th- I think it's pretty good now. It, the the biggest issue we deal with is just hunting pressure. You know, the places where it's really tough is where there's lots of people hunting. And moose are a low-density animal, and sometimes that can be hard on a moose population when you have lots of people. And you know that moose management is not that hard. Your your goal is to keep a an adequate bull-to-cow ratio. Um, if you have an adequate bull-to-cow ratio, you can have a decent season length. You know, and you can, you know, your bull-to-cow ratio can can be fixed if it starts getting low you can shorten the season or put antler restrictions on in that area Uh, but you keep a good bull cow ratio you monitor your twinning rates that tells you how your nutrition's doing in the area if you have high twinning rates then you have pretty good nutrition you know the feed and the browse is good for the moose so you monitor twinning rates and then you conduct uh, population estimates do moose surveys and from your population estimates, you can get population size, you can get composition, uh, you know things like your bull-to-cow ratio, your calf-to-cow ratio, and uh, and your density. And the ultimate goal is a high bull-to-cow ratio with high twinning rates and high calf-to-cow ratios. Hmm. You know, so so I, I've never seen it in my, well, I take that back, uh, these bad winners you hear people say oh my gosh we can't harvest that many moose because if we have a bad winter and they're depressed Mm -hmm. wow it's just double whammy it's Mm -hmm. disaster so i guess when i first moved up here in 90 1991 officially those couple winters were record book snowfalls yeah but i didn't really know the game then um do you manage in a way that you kind of buffer for that oh my gosh are you well if you have a moose population that has a high twinning rate which means you have adequate food and, and healthy moose and uh, you know high calf to cow ratios which means they're having lots of calves um, generally they can tolerate those bad winter harsher winters you know mm-hmm. now there could always be a winter that could just ruin everything it could be just too hard for any moose but uh, you know they don't even consider moose deep or snow deep for a moose until it's over three feet. Mm-hmm. So it would take 
way deeper snow than that, you know, to really hurt a moose population, unless they were already in poor shape. And then um, specifically within moose management, cow hunts seem like they're here to stay. Um, is that a fair statement? I know there was a lot of discussion when they... F- there is controversy that come with cow hunts. You know, there's the old belief that that's always the breeding animal. And, that, and that's right. They are the breeding animal. That's what keeps the population going. But I think most people don't understand that cow hunts are done at a, are conducted at a level way lower than they think. Regardless of how many, you know, a, a high cow harvest would be 2% of the total population. Oh, my gosh. 2%. You know, so... That's not very many moose. Now, it might look like on paper, oh, they're going to shoot 200 cows in the Tanana Flats. But that's only 2% if the, you know, if the population is 10,000 moose. Hmm. I've never seen, I've never seen or heard that yeah. number. Maybe it's been out there and I so missed if, it. Yeah. So if you want to lower a population, you harvest cow moose. If you want to bring a moose population down because you think it's too high, you harvest at 2 to 2.5%, maybe 3%. But if you just want to keep a moose population from growing, keep it at its current population size, you harvest cow moose at 1% to 1.5% of the population. And anything below 1% is not – your population could still grow. Right. 1% harvest. Yeah. Cow hunts, there's – in my mind – not very many populations of moose that couldn't tolerate some cow hunt at low level. What What's the percent harvest of bulls, do you know, of the population? We shoot for about 5%. Okay, so it's still not very much at all. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. But hunting generally is not a limiting factor to a moose population. Yeah, I hadn't heard those percentages. They're mm-hmm. lower than I um, appreciated. Yeah, that's interesting. Um mentioned my dad uh, it, it this is a testimony of how bad i am at convincing people of my arguments um i'm a, as you know a trained population ecologist that's mm-hmm. mostly what i do and my dad now 95 he only quit hunting a few years ago but he's going to go to his grave never having harvested a a white-tailed doe in mm-hmm. pennsylvania because it was bad for the, the yeah. breeding stock and yeah. uh he he sticks to that argument even though i've shown him you know, statistics and books that, geez, whitetails in Pennsylvania, at one point they were killing 25,000 a year on the roads just from collisions yeah. alone. Yeah. And, you know, in some of those park settings, they were approaching 80, 90 deer per square mile. I mean, yeah. it was some insane yeah. number, and he still said, no, no, no. I remember growing up and well, seeing a whitetail was a rare event. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It sounds like some of your hunters for moose are still, you know, have that memory of a moose population post bad winter, yeah. and uh, it sticks with them for their life. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like a generation you need to change before yeah. those views change. That's exactly right. And you know, you have a, a moose population, say such as the Tanana Flats. You know, it has a large population of moose. It's you know somewhere around thirteen thousand moose out there, and and. Uh, there's a certain percentage of the hunters out there that do not like cow moose to be harvested in that area. And I, and I can appreciate that. I understand. And it might be something morally or, you know, just some of their morals not to harvest a cow moose. But there's certainly 
a portion of the hunting population that's okay with harvesting a cow moose as well so yeah yeah what that survey was done a few years ago that showed that those opposed are a much more vocal group. they're very vocal yeah i bet you hear this regularly (laughs) you're being so professional (laughs) tony yeah Uh, all right so just to finish this up a little bit um we got into a lot of the nitty-gritty and you know things that are explained i think well by science you know physiology of the moose where they're at in their breeding cycle how weather might affect them but you know you've you probably had some things you just scratch your head about and go i don't get that um what happened there and uh i mean is that is there a pattern enough that you could explain that or is there just these things that are there's a lot of things i i absolutely the place i hunt's alpine country and so i can sit and watch moose right you know every day with their different rutting activities and some of the things i've seen it that have never been documented like the fact i've seen three times a large bull urine hike his leg like a dog tilt his head back and urinate directly on his antlers and i don't know anybody that's ever seen that but i've seen it three times happen huh. and then they they go around scraping trees and stuff with that urine on their antlers huh and i've never seen that documented anywhere uh, so there's a you know things like that that you can't read about it. you just have to be out there and learn about it the other thing is is the use of these wallows that the bull moose make you know they they dig a pit they urinate in it and then they often then they roll around in it and get the urine all over themselves and uh, those there is not a lot of information on what all those mean but there's a lot going on associated with those rut pits i've seen bulls make them and cows fight physically fight to get in them and i've seen one individual rut pit or wallow pit uh, used by 10 different bulls over the course of a week Hmm. and so there's a lot of different things out there that i mean you can just constantly keep learning about these critters yeah that's neat so you mentioned early on um common mistakes that people made or at least one was Moving too quickly. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like moose to me operate on a glacier, glacial time scale. They just they got all day, right? Yeah. And I'm not a patient person, so yeah. I'm guilty of yeah. that sin. What's um and these antidotes too? What are what other things would you offer to hunters that? Well, uh, patience I think is the one thing that a lot of people don't give enough patience moose hunting. Like you said, they're they move slow, and you know they on their time scale when they want to and people often don't sit and look for them long enough a a moose like i mentioned before is like a thousand pound rabbit even with a big rack they can hide in very little brush and then you've looked at a place all day long and then there he is standing there so i think patience is one of the things um i think people move around too much or too fast I think you always want to kind of be moving slow when you're hunting around moose country. And I think the one thing that really alerts a moose is somebody moving around too fast. Mm. And they're hearing so good. They know right where you're at. They more than likely know what you want or what you are. But if they don't, if moving fast will certainly tell 
them that you are not a moose and probably something that is after them. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I do a whole variety of hunting, but my passion is upland bird hunting and and chasing a dog around, and that doesn't it's, it doesn't translate it's exactly well. Exactly opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I could see. I'm guilty as mm-hmm. charged of not uh, not spending enough time. I, I want an immediate response on that call, and I, I sometimes get it, but I certainly have never sat there an hour waiting for yeah something to yeah. to happen. Maybe a half hour. Well, and you get some. There's environmental factors that speed you up. You know, if you know you only have an hour of light left, you maybe you want to cover a little more country. Yeah. Right. It doesn't always benefit you, but that might be your thought, you know. Yep. I had total patience this year, and I had a bull respond lightly when I first started calling. I waited. Was there a half hour? And he came charging in, and he went right by me, just kept on going. It was like, mm-hmm. what the heck? He ran another 100 yards past me. I had a bow. Mm-hmm. He went by in archery range probably, but, I mean, he was literally running. And then... And just started raking on the other side of me. Mm-hmm. And then um, I don't think he ever saw me. And yeah. There was no wind. I don't know if he ever smelled me. Yeah. Um, anyways, it was just, I was just, <laughs> uh, what the heck was that? You know, yeah, right, I, yeah. I was patient. I oh, yeah. did the cookbook stuff, I thought. And right. it, there was nothing I could have done. I could have shot him with a rifle. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> it's, you basically do everything wrong until it works, right? Yeah, well, and it, but it's, for me at least, I don't know about others, but that's the thing that gets me up the next morning to try again. I mean, yeah, absolutely. if yeah. it was yeah. shooting instead of hunting, I wouldn't, I yeah. probably wouldn't continue. So that's, yeah. it's fun. That's right. So we're from here, though. Um, what's what's the future hold for science and management? What are What are the questions we still should be asking and trying to address and, and a, how do we apply those? Well, there's, I think we, I think moose management in general is, you know, is, there's a lot of good information out there. There's, you know, you look at things like white-tailed deer, there's certainly that, not that much information is like white-tailed deer. And so there's always more to learn. But one thing that I hear a lot of, we use antler restrictions in a lot of areas um, and, and antler restrictions are generally to lower harvest so you can increase bull-cow ratios. And they work. But we hear a lot of people talking about, you know, that generally antler restrictions, it has to be a 50-inch moose, a 50-inch spread, or have three or four brow tines on one side. That's the, that's the antler restriction. You can't shoot anything smaller. And... Uh, so you have an antler restriction like that. Well, a lot of people will say, "Well, are you shooting that gene pool out of the out of the population? You're shooting all the moose with three and four brow tines, regardless of their width, and is that shooting the gene pool?" And so I think you know, it would be interesting to figure out if that's truly the case. Mm-hmm. I don't think they are. I think fifty percent of the gene comes from the cow. And so I don't think they are shooting, but it's hard to argue if there hasn't been any data on it. So, Yeah, I've actually had some related conversations with uh, some of your folks in your office about trying to look at this a little bit. Maybe not that specific question. It, just a plug for an earlier podcast we started talking about in, in some very well-studied populations, we see this thing called individual heterogeneity where there's these superstar animals mm-hmm. that are very 
productive and have high survival rates. And it's almost down to the individual. And and it's not always expressed in things like antler size. I'm sure you've seen the harem king be not the biggest bull necessarily, yeah. but the baddest bull yeah, at least. Exactly. And yeah. he's he's superior, um, maybe not in antler size, but in just in his attitude. And yeah. I I wonder if we'll get to the point with a variety of species where we can target these these lower quality individuals for lack of a better term yeah. and try to get them out of the population yeah. so you have a genetically better yeah. animal out there. I don't, right. I don't know how else to say that. Yeah, it's it's a it's an intriguing frontier in my mind, both in terms of um, studying it and recognizing it, but then more so how do we apply it to management and or can we? So yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, the possibilities are endless, particularly with moose. There's so much more we could learn. And, and uh, but we, we got a pretty good grasp as it is now. I think it's adequate for management, but yeah, I can always know more. No, it it seems like you guys are doing a great job. I, I, I'm sure you hear a lot more complaints than I do, but, you know, I, I see plenty of moose. I, it's always interesting uh, yeah. to me. Yeah. And uh, I, I put in a little more sweat equity maybe than do some, but yeah. nonetheless, they're with a little effort, you're finding them still. Yeah. And, um, what um, you want to finish with anything specifically? You haven't bragged at all. I'm, <laughs> I know you had a near Pope and Young moose had you got it with your bow, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I am, I mean. If you haven't figured out, I'm very passionate about moose hunting, and I particularly like to target large bull moose, and and uh, that's just how I've always been. You know, I when I was 14 years old, I shot a 65-inch moose, and everybody told me, "Where are you going to go from here?" You know, that's that's a huge bull moose. How are well, it didn't matter that I shot that. It just I've liked harvesting large bull moose now. Come the end of the season, and I haven't found a large one, I'll shoot a small one. I'm not opposed to that, you know, to make sure I have meat for the winter and all that. Yeah. I like to take one home with me, but, uh, and I don't care if I shoot it. I just assume let my son shoot the animal now. But uh, it's just, I think it's, I would rather watch the moose and learn more about him and some of the rutting activity they do. And I have a rule. I never shoot one the first day of season, the first day I'm hunting. I absolutely it wouldn't it could be a world record I'd probably pass him up and so I I won't shoot one the first day and because I, I like I don't want my hunt to end I wait all year to go on this hunt and I don't want it to be over the first day uh-huh so so did you do you have a book moose yet or or do you bother to get Boone a rocket yeah I have never had one officially measured oh really yeah yeah but, but I I have at least four of them that if I would that's I, interesting yeah. I you know hear this podcast with Alan Jubinville, um, who's a one of the two Boone and Crockett scorers in yeah. Fairbanks, mm-hmm. and he's hunted the world. And his only Boone and Crockett animal is a moose. Mm-hmm. Um, he shot a lot of other animals, and yeah. but his and I won't steal his thunder, but his his conversation is about what defines a trophy animal, and and it's not some scorebook yeah. in his mind. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how. Um, you've t- 
talked about this too, you know, the experience of that day, um, regardless of the size of the antlers, is probably yeah more trophy than any antler size. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see bull moose that um, probably 90% of the hunting public would not pass up, that I'll pass up because I, I don't want to shoot that one. Mm-hmm. It, maybe it doesn't have a characteristic I like or or for whatever reason. And I think, you know, I have in my mind kind of what I'm interested in and that's what we look for. And that's the trophy, you know. Yeah. And sometimes it's truly a Boone and Crockett trophy, but I've never had one officially measured. So, yeah, I think if I had shot an extraordinary large one, I would just for, you know, so people had that knew that there was that standard out there. But I don't know how big that would have to be if it would be a world <laughs> record or number five or something. But yeah, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good stuff. I appreciate you taking the time. I know it took a lot to get together. We should think about when we release this. And, uh, um, well, we'll probably release it in the winter like we're planning. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sure people will listen to it again come come uh, fall. So thanks again, Tony. Appreciate yep. it. No problem. Thanks for listening to this special moose hunting episode of the Hunting Science Podcast. Along with this episode, we've posted video of the moose harvest lab Mark did with his Wildlife 101 Survey of Wildlife Science students in Delta, Alaska. Head on over to our website, huntingscience.community.uaf.edu, to watch the video. There you can also find show notes, leave comments, and join the conversation. See you next time.